how do we take sensible risks, right? How do we mitigate and minimize the dangers that come with trying to avoid the physical exposure to the virus? And that's where it turns out we've got a really great treatment option for those risks. And that treatment option is religion and church. Thank you again, everyone, for tuning in to TextLedge, the Austin Institute's podcast on all things having to do with the Texas legislature. I'm your host, Dr. Kevin Stewart. I'm the executive director of the Austin Institute uh, and also our Hill Watcher in chief. I, uh, I keep an eye on the legislature for everything they're doing. Um, and uh, this is a, a really interesting session so far. Um, I'll just kind of briefly recap where the legislature is in its process. This episode of the podcast is going to be mostly about one particular piece of legislation in particular where, um, where I'm being called as invited testimony as an expert witness uh, to help them sort out some of the data, the science and social science data. And so I wanted to give you even more thorough access to that because my time there will be limited, but you'll get you'll get even more of it here, which can equip you if you're interested in being involved, if you want to know what you can do to help, um, I'm going to arm you here with information to help. And so the first thing to say is kind of where the legislature is in process. A brief recap, as you may know from previous episodes or because you're a native Texan and you learn this stuff in school, the legislature in Texas is not professional in the sense that these guys aren't full-time uh, legislators. They, The men and women of the legislature come biennially every other year. It begins in January and ends at the end of May. Um and so there, there's a set number of days, and they have to do some pretty big things. They have to pass the budget, and then this is a decennial year, meaning that we're supposed to get census data and have to do redistricting. So the initial prospect for this session was that it was going to be crowded by massive budget cuts due to COVID and then also having to do redistricting. Neither of those things actually has turned out to be the case in the sense that the Census Bureau has delayed the data release until September. So there's going to be a special session for redistricting. And the budget, the, the tax revenues turned out to be better. The economy turned out to be better than all of our dire fears from this time last year when there was a lot of talk. And I think, to be fair, really reasonable talk about a second Great Depression. Things looked really bad. But uh, America has bounced back remarkably, and Texas has bounced back even more remarkably, perhaps, uh, than, many, than many other states. And so while there will be some budget cuts, they will be fairly minor. I think it's about a billion dollars in a $250 billion budget. Uh, so that has opened up space for consideration of other important public policy matters. And we're here today to talk about one of those and to get you up to speed on on where that is. Now, of course, ERCOT has suddenly become a big issue after the freeze. And so that took up some amount of space. But there's still a lot of other important stuff going on. And today we're going to talk about one piece of legislation in particular having to do with churches and religious freedom. Uh, now, of course, the context for this the, the, at, the, at the highest level of abstraction is that there are very few liberties our country takes more seriously and maybe the answer is there are no liberties our country takes more seriously than religious liberty. 
Uh, it is first in the in the Bill of Rights, and even at the level of an often fraught Supreme Court, the votes are often fairly lopsided in favor of religious liberty, um, in favor of churches giving churches the freedom to operate. And so there's um, there are really good reasons why that's so historical and philosophical, and um, those are a lot of the reasons being offered in defense of a particular piece of legislation. So if you've got a piece of paper and a pen, you want to note it down, the bill we're talking about today is HB 1239, and the the author is Representative Scott Sanford. There's a companion bill over in the Senate, Um, and this legislation prohibits the closing of places of worship. So I'll read the key bit of language from the bill just to get us started. A government agency or a public official may not issue an order that closes or has the effect of closing places of worship in the state or in a geographic area of the state. And of course, they mean the state of Texas. So some context about that. Think back a year ago, right? Early in the pandemic, there was pretty mass confusion about what was going on, how this dangerous and deadly new virus was spread, how to protect yourself from it. Um, All sorts of weird practices developed uh, around the fear of surface contact transmission. So at first, major public health officials were telling people not to worry so much about, you know, don't go wearing a mask around, but wash your hands vigorously um, and disinfect your groceries and your mail. People were using Clorox. You couldn't buy a Clorox wipe in the entire country and people were using it on their mail and their Amazon. They were leaving Amazon boxes outside their house for three days. I mean, all of this, I hope, is summoning memories of this. And meanwhile, the economy itself begins to shut down out of fear. Um, At first, it was voluntary in the sense that at first, the people themselves, we ourselves, shut things down by simply withdrawing. We did not make unnecessary trips into the market or unnecessary trips for social engagement. Um, And and then governments came behind that that effort and shut things down legislatively with stay-at-home orders. Those stay-at-home orders included churches, so they lumped churches in with other kinds of activities out in public, including shopping, dining, going to bars, going to movies, recreation, and that sort of thing. And so where where I come in, where, where my testimony will come in and where the Austin Institute comes in is in challenging the assumption that church attendance, that religious observance is like those other things. And so the question is, what does the data tell us about church and religiosity that might distinguish it from those those other things, right? We can ask the question, does it, and then in in what ways? Um, So the first thing to say, of course, is now here we are a year later on, on the virus, and the focus is on air, right? It's on, it's on communicating it, uh, through droplets, um, so outdoors is still safest. Vaccines have been developed in record time and with amaz- amazing efficacy and are being deployed. But there are still there are still shutdown orders in place in, in in some locations. And 
there may be another, whether it's another round with a variant of this virus or another virus in, in the future, we are unlikely done with pandemics forever. And so it's worth, even now, as we approach the back end of this experience, it's worth even now contemplating what things we should do the next time around. And that's where prudence comes in, right? Because we should neither be, what the evidence says is we should neither lock ourselves down completely and try to eliminate all risk because that's impossible for reasons we'll talk about. Nor should we be completely heedless and simply throw caution to the wind, but rather prudence requires making judgments about risk. What risks are worth it for the benefits that they offer? Where's the, where's the payoff here? Um, and that's where the Austin Institute has something to say regarding HB 1239. Of course, there will be and already are religious liberty arguments, First Amendment-related arguments, and that's been the focus of much of the discussion. That said, there are public health elements uh, and risk management dimensions uh, to this whole to this whole bill and to the whole issue, and that's where data can be really helpful and the science can be really helpful. And to put the bottom line up front, the science and the data are on the side of the churches. And that's what we're going to see here. The lockdowns accelerated a lot of trends and aggravated a lot of nagging problems. So if you, if you think about some of the trends that were accelerated, working from home, many companies had sort of flirted with this in the past, but were worried about making the big leap. My sense is that's probably going to be a permanent, uh, one of the permanent outcomes is just more openness to the fact that people can be productive from home. And so while we still need offices and people still benefit from the interactions that happen at offices, it doesn't have to be an all or nothing proposition. And I think we're going to see a lot of companies going to sort of two days in the office, three days at home, or three days in the office and two days at home, that kind of arrangement. We're already seeing that, in fact. Of course, it accelerated the consumption of streaming media uh, and uh, the, the, it accelerated the shift toward Amazon. I mean, Amazon is obviously the big winner coming out of the last year. But there were also, so those are kind of the big economic stories, but they're equally big health-related stories. Study after study showed that the pandemic has increased loneliness, anxiety, depression, isolation, um, domestic abuse, drug and alcohol abuse. There are just a variety of health problems associated with the decline of sociality related to the isolation involved in the stay-at-home orders. And that's what I mean when I say that like to keeping yourself, you know, as we manage risk, we have to keep in mind that measures designed to keep us physically safe from the virus do not come free of charge. They have their own negative consequences. They entail their own dangers and risks. And so what prudence requires then is looking at the overall picture, the overall net change in risk. And so then it's natural to ask, how do we take sensible risks, right? How do we mitigate and minimize the dangers that come with trying to avoid the physical exposure to the virus? And that's where it turns out we've got a really great treatment option for those risks. And that treatment option is religion and church. One of the best kept secrets in public health 
I mean, you're going to be shocked. If you haven't delved into this stuff, you're going to be shocked by, the, by just the overwhelming mountain of findings here and the profound benefit, well-known in public health circles, of religion and church involvement. And so let me, you know, bear with me, come with me on this one as I'm going to labor the point here a little. I think it's worth labeling, uh, laboring this. I'm going to go through a lot of data and fairly quickly, but it's the only way really to convey how profound uh, all of this uh, really is. So to start with, you know, some data, I said earlier that we saw some pretty profound mental health consequences from the pandemic. Uh, there was a study done in, uh, during the pandemic that showed well more than half the country were anxious. Roughly two-thirds of the country were more anxious, right? So this is m- the vast majority, the vast majority of people. Well, now let's turn and look at what, what things religion might offer regarding mental and physical health. Uh, so here we've got a there's a there was a great study that was kind of a meta-analysis that went through and tried to round up as many studies as possible with their various levels of um, of rigor and analyze what can we what can we really say about religion? And so I'm gonna I'm gonna walk you through some of the findings there. On matters of well-being and and happiness, overall happiness, um, there were 326 quantitative peer-reviewed studies examining the relationship between religion and happiness, and 79% of those found only significant positive relationships, meaning that there were no negative outcomes here, but rather religious, uh, religious involvement um, was associated with increases in happiness. Of the 120 studies with the highest methodological rigor, 82% reported strong positive relationships between religious involvement and happiness. Um, when it comes to optimism, 81% of the studies report significant positive relationships. Uh, in other words, the more, the more religious you are, the more optimistic you are. Um, when it comes to meaning and purpose in life, no surprise here, maybe 93% reported significant positive relationships. If you're religious, then you find more meaning and purpose in life. Now, here are a couple that are counterintuitive. The stereotypes about religious people, right, involve low self-esteem, right, lower self-esteem, and maybe external sense of control, right, because they've given over control of their life. This is the kind of stereotype you hear about. You hear about well. It turns out the data does not support either of those stereotypes. That in fact, when it comes to self-esteem, sixty-one percent of uh, studies there were sixty-nine studies on this, and sixty-one percent of those found greater self-esteem among those who were more religious. When it comes to a sense of control or sort of uh, ability to shape your own life, again, another sixty-one percent found that religion was related to a greater sense of personal control during challenging life circumstances. Now, that one struck me as particularly relevant, right? What was 2020, if not just a huge ball of challenging life circumstances, where all of us needed the resources available to help us feel and own our, you know, a bit more ownership of the circumstances of our lives? And it turns out religious observance offers that 
to us uh, profoundly. When it comes to positive character traits like altruism, 70% of the studies reported strong connections between religiosity and altruism. So when it comes to helping others, not feeling helpless, when it comes to not being selfish, right, to doing the right thing, um, then uh, religion helped with that. Uh, so you can, you can see an obvious public health connection there. If we need people to be personally responsible and personally respo- personal responsibility during a pandemic looks like looking out for other people, then we need the help of those things which encourage the character traits that cause people of their own accord without being coerced into looking out for other people. And it turns out religion does that. Um, when it comes to forgiveness, 85% saw positive relationships between forgiving people for their mistakes, right? Let's ratchet down um, the temptation to, to be vindictive with other people. Um, let's, let's ratchet down the heat and stress in life. Turns out religion helps us do that. That's what the studies show. When it comes to depression, we've already talked about the fact that studies show that last year there were, there were significant increases in incidences of, of anxiety, stress, and the precursors of, and in fact, depression itself. Well, 61% of hundreds, there were hundreds of studies, 61% reported significant inverse relationships between religiosity and depression. So what that means is the more religious you are, the less depressed you will be. Um, Of the 178 studies with the highest methodological rigor, 67% or two-thirds reported that same kind of relationship. In two-thirds of the cases, what they saw was that the more religious you were, the less depressed you were. When it comes to suicide, we saw an uptick in suicides last year. This is a tremendous problem. Um, With respect to suicides, 75% of the studies showed um, that being more religious decreased suicides. With regard to the 49 or so studies with the highest methodological rigor, the connection was even stronger. 80% of those showed a strong correlation between increased religiosity and decreased suicide. When it comes to anxiety, 78% of studies found a reduction in anxiety following a religious intervention. So if someone's having a problem and there's a religious intervention, in 78% of the cases, um, the anxiety diminished after that religious intervention. Of the 32 randomized control trials, so this is like the gold standard in social science. This is the best methodology. 69% reported that a religious intervention reduced anxiety by more than a standard intervention or control condition. So it was, in fact, better than the standard ways of intervening in a person's life when they're suffering anxiety. Um, So it it was the best way, in other words, to intervene in someone's life. Substance abuse. Substance abuse became a problem last year, right? Rising consumption of alcohol, rising use of drugs. Um, In 86% of the studies, there was an inverse relationship, meaning once again, as religiosity went up, substance abuse went down. Of the 145 studies with the best methodology, 90% reported that as religion, as religious observance went up, substance abuse came down. Delinquency and crime. 
there have been over a hundred studies on delinquency and crime and the uh, its connection with religiosity. In in those studies, seventy nine percent reported that as religiosity went up, crime came down. We saw crime spikes in major cities across the country last year, an increase in total crime, an increase in violent crime. It turns out that religion is one of the ways, right? Religious observance is one of the ways that uh, society has of helping curb crime. Of the 60 studies, in fact, with the highest reported methodological rigor, 82% showed that as religiosity goes up, crime comes down. Let's talk about marital stability, right? Last year was a really challenging year for a lot of couples. Um, and uh, it can and marital instability can trip off a whole host of problems for the couple themselves and also for their children and, of course, for their community of friends and family. So there were 79 studies that examined relationships of marital instability, and in those, 86%. The vast majority, 86%, found religiosity related to greater marital stability. And not a single study reported an, associated, an association between re- religious, uh, religious practice and marital instability. So it's a huge help for those. Of the 38 studies that were the most rigorous, 92% reported significant relationships between uh, religiosity and marital stability. This keeps going and going. We're going to go through a few more. I know, again, it sounds like I'm laboring the point, but that's actually the point. I need to labor this because, as I say, I think for many of us, this is a well-hidden secret that needs to get out there in the open. So let's keep going. Social support, right? My goodness, last year, we all needed more social support. Of 74 quantitative peer-reviewed studies, 82% found significant positive relationships between religiosity and social support. Social capital, 79% of studies found significant positive relationships between religiosity and social capital. So more religiosity results in more social capital. When it comes to physical health, let's talk about cigarette smoking. Um, There have been hundreds of studies around cigarette smoking and 137 specifically looking at religion. 90% of those showed statistically significant inverse relationships, meaning that the more religiosity we see, the less cigarette smoking we see. Exercise. Um, 68% of studies showed that more religion equals more exercise in someone's someone's life. Of those that were the most rigorous, it goes up to 76. So three quarters of the studies showed that the more religious you are, the more likely you are to be exercising and avoiding uh, cigarette smoking. When it comes uh, to diet, 62% of studies found a significant positive relationship between religiosity and a healthier diet. Of the most rigorous studies, that number goes up to 70%. Specifically about cholesterol, believe it or not, there are actually studies on cholesterol and religiosity. More than half of the studies showed that one of the one of the ways you can lower your cholesterol is by being more religious and going to church. Um, so it's just, I mean, it's nearly magical. I mean, we would of course say it's not magical, but I stress the point that it seems nearly magical uh, from a public health standard because it's 
its consequences are so profound and so far-reaching when it comes to sexual behavior. It probably won't surprise you to learn that 86% of the studies found significantly less risky sexual behavior among those who are more religious. When it comes to heart disease, believe it or not, heart disease, 63% of studies reported a significant inverse relationship between heart disease and religious attendance, meaning the more religious you are, the less heart disease. High blood pressure, hypertension, 57% of studies reported significantly lower blood pressure in those who were more religious. Of the most rigorous studies, that number goes up to 62%. So almost two-thirds of the studies showed significantly lower blood pressure for those people who were more religious. Uh, Cerebrovascular disease. So this is um, cardiovascular diseases uh, and stroke, right? Here we're talking about stroke. Uh, there was strong connection of a lower risk of stroke by being more religious. Alzheimer's Alzheimer's disease and dementia. Uh, 57% of the most rigorous studies there showed positive relationships between increased religiosity and lower risk of Alzheimer's disease and dementia. It's also the case that where where there were increases, it was largely attributed to something that's actually a good thing. Religious people live longer. And so, of course, a few, there, there were some, um, the effects seemed to be less profound here in part because the lifespans were longer. Immune function. Uh, Lord knows we all needed better immune system functioning from last year. It turns out that religiosity is a great way to improve your immune system's functioning. There were 27 studies on the relationship between religiosity and immune function, and 56% of those found strong positive relationships between being more religious and having um, stronger immune system or lower infection rates. Of the 14 studies with the highest quality relations, 71% found a significant positive. So nearly three-quarters of the studies of the of that were the most rigorous showed a strong relationship between being more religious uh, and having a stronger immune system. So that's tr- that's tremendous, you know, and of course vitally important as we're thinking about public health matters regarding uh, an infectious disease. So let's look at cancer. All right, with respect to cancer and religiosity. There have been dozens of studies, and 55% found that those who were more religious had lower risk of developing cancer or a better prognosis if they got cancer. Um, Of the 20 that were methodologically most rigorous, 60% found an association between greater religiosity and lower risk and better outcomes for, for cancer cases. And also very importantly, not a single study reported worse outcomes or higher risk. So um, you want to do something to help protect against cancer in your life? Again, uh, the church can help you there. So then looking overall, it won't be any surprise after all that, that when we look at the issue of mortality or death, that there have, that while there have been hundreds of studies on mortality and religiosity, uh, 68%, two-thirds, found that greater religiosity predicted significantly greater longevity in life, right? So you're going to live longer, you're going to be happier, healthier, 
uh, more socially integrated, less likely to suffer from cancer, heart disease, depression, drug use, all of these sorts of things. And again, the results are just overwhelming. It took a long time to to go through all of that, and I had to bombard you. You know, an audio format is not really the best for displaying data, but it's worth marching through each of those to really hammer home the point that there is just a mountain of data, and it is really well-known and well-established in public health and social science circles of the profound benefits of religiosity and church involvement and church attendance on people's lives. Almost, one might suspect, as if we were made to do so. Um, The news is actually even better for women. So here's one particular study from a colleague and friend of ours at Harvard University, uh, Tyler Vanderweel. And uh, it showed that attending a religious service more than once per week was associated with 33% lower all-cause mortality compared uh, to women who never attended religious services. So again, women who attend religious service more than once a week have 33% lower all-cause mortality than women who never attend religious service. So the you know this this month is women's history month so maybe we pay special attention to women uh in, in this issue and there again the news is is even better. So there is a huge and similar swath of studies that shows the benefits of church attendance itself of just isolating on the attendance and the involvement not merely the beliefs in your life not merely the prayer at home but also the actual the actual activity of participating. And uh, our, again, our colleague and friend at Harvard, um, Tyler Vanderweel, found that while, and this is particularly important for the pandemic conditions, found that under pandemic conditions, when churches were closed, the replacement activities that people had to substitute for going to church, they did some good. So, you know, it was not bad that people did those, but really importantly, either individually or even altogether, none of those makeup activities, none of those that tried to fill the gap, were actually able to make up the gap of attending church in person. Let me say that again. None of the substitute activities, whether it was watching the church service online, extra prayer at home, none of those are bad things. They're all good. And they all helped. And people should do them. But all of them together did not make up the gap created by closing church and not having in-person attendance as a possibility. So I think all the data then converges on this. With sensible precautions in place, church is worth the risk. Even if you don't accept the spiritual benefits of church. And to be clear, I do. Look, I don't go to church for therapeutic reasons. I don't go to church because it lowers my cancer risk. I don't go to church because it lowers my cholesterol, although I should lower my cholesterol. Um, I go to church because I believe, right? But that said, from even if you didn't believe, right? Suppose you're just a person out there in the in public life who um, who just wants to know what is the best policy for better public health outcomes. If that's the question you're asking, then the answer is that churches are not like, going to church is not like shopping. Going to church is not like going to the movies or eating at restaurants or visiting with friends at bars. That there is something truly special 
even in a completely secular public health way of looking at things, there is something special about church participation. And because of its profound benefits on public health generally, and especially because of its profound mental health benefits and protective qualities for our immune system, even under pandemic conditions, the prudent thing to do is with sensible precautions in place at the churches to leave the churches open. I think that's where the evidence points us. We have the science on the side of the churches on this one. And so I hope that some of that has equipped you if you feel moved. The bill number again is HB 1239, and uh, you can contact your legislators and give them your opinion on the bill. Um, And uh, this is sort of an expanded version of the testimony I will be offering to the House State Affairs Committee, who's considering the bill right now. Um, I'll have a lot less time there, and I'll have to condense a lot of this, but you you got the much, the much more expanded. But this bill is moving. It has moved through the Senate committee, uh, or a companion bill has moved through the Senate committee. This one's moving through the House. Um, so far, um, it's it's been successful and, and approved. So we're keeping an eye on this one as it's very important to families in Texas, and we'll be keeping an eye on other legislation. Um, but that is that is the state of things today. This is uh, this is Text Ledge, a podcast all about the legislature. Um, the legislative issue before us today is whether churches should be allowed to remain open when other things are closed under uh, executive orders. And uh, the Austin Institute will be providing vital assistance to the legislators in their deliberations so that they make prudent choices for all of us. And we are bringing the strong. Uh, the mountain of public health and social science data available on the profound positive impacts of religiosity and church attendance on people's mental, physical, and emotional health. Um, So that's our testimony. That's our take on this particular bit of legislation, our unique spot. We are uniquely positioned to provide that good data to help legislators make better decisions and better law and better policy for Texas families. So uh, I hope you've enjoyed learning a bit about what public health has to say about religiosity. And uh, again, that, that bill is HB 1239. And so until the next episode and the next issue that we'll have something to say about, I am Dr. Kevin Stewart, Executive Director of the Austin Institute. Thanks for joining us for Tech Sledge. Thank you all for listening to Tech Sledge, a podcast from the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture. Please share it with your friends. Please give us a five-star rating and please donate so we can do even more.